Hello, Nerd Soup fans, and more importantly, Game of Thrones fans. My name is Bo Oliver, and today we will be going back and reviewing the very first episode of Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming. We've been asked to do this for some time, so we're finally going to review every single episode of Game of Thrones up until the season finale of Season 5, since we've already reviewed Season 6 and 7. So I hope you enjoy and take this journey with us. Alright, I'm here with the monkey, Aaron Samuel, our resident Game of Thrones expert. Um, so what are your opinions on the pilot episode? Well, in hindsight, I think it's one of my favorite episodes, just to see where it all started, especially knowing what we know through seven seasons, always to go back there. It's always, uh, you could tell it's a little bit, especially as a new viewer, it's kind of disjointed. I mean, there's so much they're trying to convey to the audience that it's hard to pick up right away. Looking back on it, I definitely love it. Yeah, I think it's a great episode. I've watched this episode with people who've never seen the show, and they've said that this episode turned them off from continuing the show. I think the world is so big, there's so many characters and subplots, that it's hard to establish all of that in your first episode. You hear the tales about how they had to reshoot 90% of it. I think it came out well for what they had to do. Uh, let's go right to the first scene, though, and I think there's so many different subgenres prevalent in Game of Thrones, but when the White Walkers appear, you feel that horror element, and this first scene is just terrifying. Uh, and I love the way that they've used the White Walkers throughout the show, and you see it in this scene. You fear the enemy that you don't know, that you can't see, and that mystery, they don't really come into play until a couple of seasons later, but right off the bat, you're letting the audience know this is the antagonist of the show. And I love how they don't come back to it, like, because it's always lingering in the background, like, wait, what about the White Walkers, because it takes on its own medieval political drama, aside from the fantasy aspect of it, but the fantasy is always hanging on top of the real Westerosi politics, and I think it's beautifully done. It lets the audience know what kind of show this is. It would have seemed a little weird to not introduce it until when they start becoming more prevalent. So, you know, it gives you a little taste. I think it drew the audience in. It's kind of something new. Yeah, and it's how the books open as well. I mean, the first scene of season one is a magical scene. The last scene of season one is a magical scene, and it's those two powers that are going to come head-to-head, -head, that have come head-to-head -head in season seven. But the way it's shot, too, there's great atmosphere in the scene. It's first time we see the wall, we go beyond the wall in the first episode. And when they find the the group of wildlings that were slaughtered by the White Walkers, and they're in that circular formation that the White Walkers love to make, and you see the young girl with her head spiked, it's terrifying. Um, and the whole chase sequence when the man, when the White Walker grabs the man by the head and just decapitates him. Yo, those guys are booking. Yeah, they, yeah, they were out of there. And been in a wall in two episodes. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. I guess they were like scouts for the Night King looking back. That's what I do like. I, it, there's a mystery to the White Walkers that we'll never know why it took them so long to get to the wall. I don't think they're in any rush. Maybe they're waiting for winter. Well, it's already been thousands of years. I think they can wait a couple more seasons. Yeah. Um, they were a lot quicker in this episode, too. Now everything is so slow and methodical, and they have so much swag. <laughs> In this first episode, they're very just, we're just going to kill you. Yeah. You know, we'll taunt you. Well, they're always, like, cocky about it. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I had to. I was like, yeah, go tell your fucking boys. Well, in the book, too, George writes that they were almost laughing at them. Yeah. But it wasn't a laugh. It was like an ice cackle. But yeah, it's a great first scene, and then from there we go to... They're probably talking so much shit. Yo, tell your boy. Go tell <laughs> Ned Stark what happened here. Um, and then we get an introduction to the Stark family, and looking back, it's so funny. They're so happy in this scene. And it's a great scene where there's not a lot of dialogue. It's just them in the courtyard. Bran is working on shooting his bow and arrow. And you can see that they're a tight-knit family. And it's sad looking at them. It's like, dead, dead, dead. Sir Roderick, dead. Jory Castle, dead. Rick, oh, Rickon, yeah, dead. Bran <laughs> probably will die. Uh, 
Hopefully you're not watching this after you just started the series. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> Dad came back to life. But, yeah, it's it, they do a great job of establishing the family, and it's the only time that they're all together. It's reminiscent. To, there's so many parallels that I've, I've been on a Godfather kick lately, and I feel like Game of Thrones is the modern-day Godfather because it's so much about families and what you do for your family. Or and Fast and Furious. Family's very big in those movies. Family. It's about family. <laughs> I could have seen Vin Diesel as Cal Drogo in the Hollywood adaptation. <laughs> or The Rock. It's similar to that first scene in The Godfather where it's they're all celebrating the wedding of his daughter and it's the first scene where they're all together. There's nothing going wrong where they could just be a family, they can be themselves, and, you know, going forward from this episode, it's all going to fall apart. It's a tragic story, but I think they do a great job of setting the, all those characters up. Yeah, and you get a feel for the characters right away. I mean, you see Sansa, and then, you know, she's doing her sewing, and Arya, immediately, just the look on her face, you can tell that's not what she's about, and she... Hits the bullseye. You know, you see the stare between Catelyn and John, and you kind of see the disdain between them. It's fun. I wonder what book readers, when we're watching this episode for the first time, just trying to guess who everyone is. Like, oh, that's John. You see the way Catelyn looked at him? Oh, that must be Rob. That's to be Rob. Oh, Rickon. We didn't really, uh, no one really paid attention to him. That's definitely Rickon. Yeah, that's Rickon. Yeah. Nobody likes him. Oh, she doesn't like song. That's Arya. That's Arya. That's Arya. Oh, she's got the red hair. That's, uh, that, that, that's um, uh, Jean Grey. And then the next scene is when Ned executes the deserter, Will. And it's great because we're in on the secret that the White Walkers do exist. But nobody I, that's what I love about this show, too, is that magic doesn't exist to these people. The White Walkers are a myth. The Children of the Forest, those crazy little elves. It, it's really like a real world. It's a real medieval world, like you said, with that shadow of the fantastical elements lingering over all of the political maneuvering. It's kind of like uh, Star Wars a little, like where the Jedi become a myth. You know, Han Solo yeah. doesn't believe in the Force anymore, even though it like, happened 30 years ago. And <laughs> this is like 2,000 years. Yeah. So it makes more sense, but... It's it, a big galaxy. Yeah. Far, far away. Yeah, and you kind of get the first look at Ned as a father, really. He's kind of very stoic and, by the book, uh, very honorable. And I love the scene with Rob and, Rob and John both, like, talking to Bran, uh, Bran about it. Like, don't look away, he'll know. It's Bran trying to learn, like, the Stark way. Like, his first experience of, might not really understand why his dad had to do it. It's just being set into him the Stark way to, whoever passes the sentence should swing the sword. It's one of those great little moments that shows you why these kids look up to Ned so much, even in the later seasons where he's always brought up. He, he casts a large shadow over his family because he's an honorable man, and he's really just a decent man. He's just a good father to his kids. Yeah, and sometimes he can get lost. Like He can seem very stubborn and kind of like, you know, a bit of a dick, Like especially when they find a dire wolves when he wants to kill him. He's like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. But it's, it's just, come on, Dad, we want a dog. He's like, oh, you know how much those dogs cost. These are not dogs, they're dire wolves. Am I doing a good Sean Bean? <laughs> no. Okay. But he definitely grows like as a character and really becomes an audience favorite throughout the season when you get to really know the type of person he is. Yeah, and uh, in that scene where they find the dire wolves, you can see that how much he's rubbed off on somebody like Jon Snow. I, I love that when he says Lord Stark, he doesn't call him dad, and he says the dire wolf is the sigil of your house, not my house. You were meant to have these these direwolves. And the direwolves, really, they mirror the characters that they were attached to. You can see the metaphors. Obviously, the direwolves talk about fan favorites. Everybody loves those puppies. Yeah, and the creators really know how much we love them because they put them in every episode, and they play a big part in seasons to come. Did you really need Ghost in season seven? Yeah. Why? I love Ghost. What did he do in season six? We got Nymeria, but we didn't get Ghost. Yeah, that that is stupid. And then we get the introduction to two of the most polarizing characters on the show, uh, Cersei and Jaime. And what I love about this scene is that it shows you how right now they're kind of 
due to circumstance, they're pretty comfortable in their lives. They don't have to go to the extremes of their personality. But it's funny looking at them in this episode and then looking at them at the end of season seven and how their trajectories have gone the complete opposite ways. Where Jamie is a sympathetic character now, he's looking for redemption. Cersei is just completely callous and ruthless and isn't she the best? She, <laughs> well, you love her, but uh, you know they don't. Right away, they paint them in a smug light, and I think that was a yeah. They're definitely framed as the villains of the show right off the bat. They're smug, they're arrogant. You know, they never really had a chance as far as an introduction for the audience. But that's what makes their characters so great going forward. Is that we had such disdain for them at first, and we're able to see their arcs play out into what they are now. And I think that adds so much to the characters. It's great writing, really. And they're at the funeral of John Aaron, a character that we never see alive, but it's his death that really sparks the events of the show. Uh, and even they don't, looking back, they don't know what happened to him. They don't know who killed John Aaron. Right away, the audience, we think they did it. So when that letter comes from Liza later in the episode, we're like, oh, I knew that. What are you you're telling me stuff I already knew. <laughs> And that's the genius of the show. Uh, and then Ned finds out the news about John Aaron. It's another instance of relationships in the past that we'll never see on screen, but there is a history to this universe. Um, and Ned calls John Aaron like a second father to him. Uh, and then he gets the news that King Robert is riding south. And I love that little scene between him and Catelyn in the Godswoods. It, it establishes the mythology, the northern mythology in Westeros. It's beautifully shot, too, the cinematography. Oh, yeah, the, the werewood in the background and yeah. him cleaning the sword. Do you think Bran is just scoping them out? Oh, he's oh, one of these. That's. I feel like Bran's on the couch with us every time we watch an episode. <laughs> I hope they didn't have sex after that. Um, you know, Bran's a little fucking weirdo anyway. <laughs> and this is great. We get introductions, like you said, people who read the books seeing, oh, that, that's Joffrey. Oh, that's the Hound. See, his face is kind of burnt. Oh, that's Jamie Lannister, the Queen's twin brother. Oh, that's just Arya. Yeah. <laughs> think she read the books? Uh, I think so. <laughs> And once, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, shit, is there, like, bad blood between them? It's like, oh, north, south, and then, cat, <laughs> you got fat. I, once again, it's a relationship that we don't see on screen when they were younger, but just that brief moment of them embracing shows that there's a bond there, a friendship. Right away, we see Robert right away want to go down into the crypts to visit Lyanna Stark, his uh, betrothed. And Ned's sister. That's just like what I'm talking about when I say sometimes when you don't really know the scope, like just watching it gets kind of confusing because they throw in all these characters that you don't know and into the past. And in the books, they can like sprinkle it in throughout the chapters and you learn more about this. But this is something that really doesn't get brought up too much in the seasons to come, which I kind of don't mind. You know, I kind of like when you have to like look up things and look up to the past because the world is so it's lived in. This is an example, I think, of throwing something in there that they don't really expand on until much later. But it's a nice moment for the people who know what's going on and to go back and visit on. And it's in this moment where people say, if that just said no to Robert, the show never happens. I name you Hand of the King. Eh, I can't really do it. Show over. Um, but Ned agrees, and you can see that bond, too, that Ned gets down on his knee and says, I'm not worthy of the honor, and Robert's like, shut the fuck up, just stand up. And it's it shows that he doesn't have to call him by his noble title. He doesn't have to call him your grace, you know? That's Robert, that's Ned, they're buddies. And then we get an introduction for book readers. It must have been awesome seeing Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister, another character due to circumstance who's just very comfortable in his life. We're going north, we're going to Winterfell, I'm going to find the nearest whorehouse, and I'm going to get drunk, and that's what I do. It's, it's wasted potential. If the events of this show don't happen like they do, then Tyrion Lannister probably dies of alcoholism in like a couple of years. It, like I said, it's just wasted potential, because we know his genius now, and you see what he was doing, and it's kind of sad. 
because everyone loves Tyrion, but I like how they kind of let the audience decide for themselves that they're going to like Tyrion. Because when he's introduced, like, this is a brother, he's a Lannister, so, this oh, this is the family you're supposed to hate. Like, who's who's this Tyrion guy? And then, he's a little pompous, he's kind of a little dick, like, in his comments, his wit. I love how it takes a little while for the audience to be like, oh, I fucking love this guy. It's not, he's not just thrown in as, like, the good Lannister, the one you're supposed to root for. That's how I felt anyway. And I like how we got to see Jamie too. Like, we know Jamie's not the evil person that he is portrayed in in their first couple seasons. And you could tell, even in the next episode as well his moments with Tyrion where you could tell they have a relationship and Jamie really is the only one that treats him as a uh, equal like a brother and they have that little back and forth he's like please don't leave me alone with these people and then he hooks him up gets him some girls <laughs> get all out of your system close the door we got a feast yeah and in the next scene we get Rob and Lyanna back in the crypts well Lyanna's statue and I think Mark Addy's acting in this episode is incredible especially in this scene where you can see the pain of what happened to him and Liana, the woman he loved, and it's like you should have buried her somewhere up on a hill with the clouds above her. That's just sitting there like, yo, bro, she didn't even like you. Yeah, she she didn't even like you that much, dude. She <laughs> had another dude. Uh, spoilers. But the, I love the line too when Ned says, "It's done, your grace. All the Targaryens are gone," and he's like, "Not all of them." It's it's delivered so perfectly, and then it's followed by one of the best cuts of the whole show, and we're introduced to Daenerys Targaryen, one of the main characters, possibly the most important character. It's again, it's that contrast between where she is in this episode to where she is now. And she's got that wide-eyed innocence where she looks confused and lost and a little sad. And you feel bad for her as a member of the audience right away. And also you're attracted to her because she, <laughs> Amelia Clark is a beautiful woman. So it's like, who the hell is this? Yeah, you see that longing for her. She just wants to go home. She, she, that's all she wants. And you feel bad. Like in the book, she always reminisces on the red door. And there you kind of you kind of feel that longing to just... You could tell that she's been on the run her whole life. And she's very confused. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's basically... Well, she is being used for the gain of other people. The first look at her, too. It, it reminds me of Luke Skywalker's look on Tatooine when he's looking at the binary sunset. But it's different because Luke Skywalker is longing for adventure and freedom. And Daenerys is just longing for a place that she can call home. And then we're introduced to her brother, Viserys Targaryen, who I, I always forget that this guy even existed. The scenes between them, the interactions are so awful. And he's such a terrible human being, and they establish that right away. Yeah, and that only doubles when she goes outside and she's getting married off to Cal Drogo, the Dothraki warlord. And she's being used as a bargaining trip to help Viserys get an army to attack Westeros. And even the comments he says directly after that about all 40,000 men and their horses, it's just, uh, you fucking hate this guy right off the bat. I was also confused, too, when I first saw it, because I had no idea who these people were. They don't make an effort to establish the Mad King and what happened with him, but I, I don't mind You don't know, that. like, he, he is the rightful king. You think maybe, like, oh, he's some guy who wants to invade. Like, it's, it is yeah. kind of a little confusing. That's why when people tell me they tried to watch the first episode and they had no idea what was going on, I can understand why they were reluctant to continue. But I was confused about Daenerys. I just stuck around because she was hot. It's <laughs> like, so, all right, I'm on board. <laughs> I want her to win. Yeah, Jason Momoa, Aquaman as Cal Drogo, and this is, I think, where they got lucky, where they casted an unknown guy who looks like a Hollywood leading man, because he is just perfect casting. The dude is ripped out of his face. He looks like Cal Drogo would look, how I read him in the book, how he would look like. And before the Dothraki wedding, we get the Feast of Winterfell. And you're a big, you're a big medieval feast guy. Yeah, I always wanted to attend a medieval feast. You go to medieval times, like every other weekend. It's really <laughs> strange. <laughs> <laughs> but we see King Robert, we see the, we get a look into the type of man that he actually is, that he's grabbing women by the ass and he's drinking wine and you feel bad for Cersei when she gives him that look, but everybody else is having a good time, you know? Yeah, Cersei, stop being, yeah, stop, get off stop your being ass. such a party pooper. Yeah. <laughs> 
And you also get to see the Stark family again, like how close they are. You have the dynamic between Arya and Sansa, her flicking food at her, and Rob laughing his ass off, and like, all right, Arya, time for bed, <laughs> sending her off. And I love the interaction between Cersei and uh, Catelyn in those scenes. Just the stark contrast where she, again, framed as like just a huge, a huge asshole. Like when she says, oh, such a beauty to Sansa. It would be a shame to have her <laughs> uh, stored up here, up here in the north where no one could see her. And the one person who wasn't invited to the feast, Jon Snow, which is, in the book he is at the feast, but he sits at the back. And I like the way it ties together with Mance Raider, but we'll, we'll do that when we review the books chapter by chapter. Um, <laughs> John and Benjamin, and we see first uh, the first look of John wanting to leave Winterfell. And for me, uh, once again, I didn't know why. You know, why would he want to leave his family? I didn't understand the the rift between him, him and Catelyn. I thought maybe like he forgot to put like the arrows away, and his mom was <laughs> mad at him in that, during that look. It's like he's like, oh, take me away, you know, to join this this elite group of fighters and i thought oh that's pretty cool i guess and then Tyrion comes out of the shadows and they build that relationship that comes into play in season seven as well and it's a great scene between these two outsiders well yeah just their whole journey together in the coming episodes and their journey to the wall as well they're physically different obviously but the things they have to go through a bastard and a, a being a dwarf is very similar what do you know about being a bastard all dwarves are bastard in their father's eyes so immediately i think they they have that connection where they're both outcasts, and maybe Tyrion deals with it better than Jon does, because Jon just wants to leave, whereas Tyrion has kind of embraced embraces being the smart one and does what he can to even the playing field, sort of. He can get by in his wits, whereas Jon just wants to be somewhere that he can feel that way, and that's what he feels the Night's Watch can bring. There are great moments throughout the feast where we see Jamie and Ned, and they have their little back and forth, and you can it's foreshadowing the rift between their two families, and we get a scene of Ned and Benjen, the two brothers, and Great casting, because they really do look like they could be brothers. And later that evening, Ned and Catelyn, when they're just having some nice pillow talk, and he says, listen, fat man, I'll <laughs> tell you, you cannot take him. They get the letter about John Aaron, and then we get the introduction to a character, not his physical presence, but his malicious presence. Um, the letter that the Lannisters killed John Aaron. And this is what really sets the whole show into motion. And I love the, uh, the scene where, well, in the same, I love the shot where it's Ned... You have Catelyn on his left and Maester Lewin on his right, and it's the you know it's the devil and the angel, the two conflicts of his heart. You know this is really the beginning of the end <laughs> for Ned and yeah. the close knit group that he calls family. Well, it's another it portrays like his character. You know, you can always decline, you can always say no, and Ned obviously feels that. Maester Lewin says, "If the king's in danger, who better but than you to help protect him?" And that's honor calling, that's duty calling, and Ned really, as much as he might not want to do it, he feels he has to. I always forget that Jorah Mormon's in the pilot. You know, when I first saw Jorah and Daenerys is like, oh, are you from my country? It's like, yeah, what well, gave it away? Uh, <laughs> I thought that they were going to be, like, romantically linked. Um, and it turns out that Jorah's actually obsessed with her, but it doesn't, doesn't really go both ways. It's also the introduction of the dragon eggs, and right away you know these things are going to hatch. You know, they're going to hatch. It's it's fantasy. There's going to be some dragons. I got Jorah's like, yeah, I got you some books. Like, oh, great. <laughs> oh, thanks, Jorah. And O'Leary was like, <laughs> one's up him right away. He's like, ah, oh. <laughs> books, nice. Good, good present, Jorah. Uh, bring in the priceless dragon eggs. I think it's the first our first uh, introduction to Do the Dothraki as a people. You know, there's murders. <laughs> Dothraki wedding's a dull affair. There's not at least three murders. Or... Yeah, they're like the Mongols, basically, I think. And Khal Drogo is like their Genghis Khan. But I don't know. When I first saw it, because I had never seen something just like straight up that graphic, I think. Oh, wow. Oh, they're really going to just have <laughs> yeah. sex on the dance floor, They're just huh? fucking and killing, <laughs> right? On the, and Khal Drogo's like, yeah. 
Okay, I see you. So this is good stuff. It's Thanks. Boy right there. <laughs> oh, he's dead. Oh, that sucks. The scene where they consummate their marriage. It's another controversial scene. Um, but it, it's different in the books. In the books, she kind of says, yes. She's like, fine. Uh, do you think their relationship is a little Stockholm syndrome I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Because... Uh, it yeah, is who knows? The, it's the times as well. I yeah. Mean, these things happened in yeah. medieval times. Yeah. I mean, it's another saddening scene. It sets up Daenerys as a sympathetic character of the show, and which even makes her climb to the top even more fascinating and amazing for the audience as well. And back to Winterfell, where Rob and Ned are going hunting, and we see a brief scene between Ned and Bran where they kind of nod their heads at each other. And it's the last time they'll ever see each other again. Bran goes climbing, should have listened to his mom, and right away. That's really the theme of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Listen to your parents, kids. Yeah. This is another scene where I was like, huh, they're really, they're really doing this, huh? <laughs> uh, a, lot of people, most, a lot of people I talked to didn't even know that they were related. They were like, oh, they're just a couple. You know, why do, why do they care? But yeah, it, it's one of the great surprises of the show. It's definitely not a, only seeing them doing it, but then when Bran gets pushed off the tower. It's one of the scenes, like, I feel like as a first-time viewer, I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's start up episode two right now. <laughs> let's see how yeah, this goes. Yeah, let's get right into it. Jamie throughout the whole episode, Jamie and Cersei, they're not set up to be the protagonist. They're framed in a light where you're going to root against them. And right away, Jamie, with this action, puts himself in an invidious position with the audience by pushing Bran out of the tower. And right away, you're like, okay, this is the character I want the good guy to kill. Yeah. And I think that's the genius of the show is that they present us these cliches and these archetypes and then they flip them on their heads. They take characters like Jamie and Cersei who are supposed to be the villains and they show their humanities. And they also take characters that are supposed to be the heroes and they show their flaws. Yeah, and that's truly the genius of the show. And his character development to me has been, like I said, he goes from a character that I hated in the first episode to now he's my favorite character. In hindsight, too, like when you know who Jamie is and his motivations, you can kind of, now I'm not advocating child pushing at windows. I'm just saying you can kind of see where he's coming oh from. Oh, boy. No, I can see where he's coming from when you know him as a person, when he's just, his only thing he has is Cersei and he's trying to protect that. I'm not saying you went about it the right way, but you can kind of get more understanding as you know the character. Yeah, what do you think about the whole theory that the Three-Eyed Raven... What is that theory? It's ridiculous. Three-Eyed Raven controlled Jamie to do it just so Bran would end up going following this arc. I hate that. Stupid. Yeah. It takes away from Jamie's development and arc. Unless George says it to you in the next book, then it's genius. Genius. It's, it's destiny. That's what it is. Um, okay, so the way we're going to rank these episodes, because that's really where it comes to an end there. Final scene. Cuts to black. Uh, we're going to give them one out of ten for every episode, and then at the end of the season, we'll average those those ratings out, and we'll get a an average for the season. So what would you give this episode out of ten? In hindsight, I like it a lot more, going back and watching it, knowing what happens after, but to try to put myself as a first-time viewer, probably have to give it around, uh, probably like an eight. Yeah, I think the episode overall, it was well done. I don't think it's disjointed because of pacing. I think it's paced very well. It's obviously, it feels longer than the actual runtime, because it's one of the slowest episodes of the show. I mean, you get that first 15 minutes at a rapid fire, rapid fire. It's thrilling. You're on the edge of your seat. And then from there on, it's it's very slow. You're developing your characters. I think it's disjointed because it was it's, a, it's an impossible episode to make. Unless you're going to make the first episode five hours and sit down and explain everything, you really need Westeros 101 to you understand know People try to make on. this into a movie. Imagine that oh, fucking God. mess that would be. <laughs> yeah. But overall, I would give the episode a 7 out of 10. I think I love the episode, like you said, but I think it is more nostalgia, but I would have to rate it on... It just could never be, for me, more than a 7 out of 10 because of the subject matter they were dealing with. It's a 10 out of 10 when you go back and watch it after knowing everything that you know now. 
All right, so that's episode one in the books. We'll be coming back next Monday with episode two. You could do like watch it every Sunday night and get the Monday review, just like if Game of Thrones was on, and instead of not being on until 2019. April 2019. Ooh. Yeah, according to Maisie Williams. That sucks. Right. Where's the trigger? Little Dark Knight Rises for you. Nice. I was watching it the other night on HBO. Underrated.